Our New Testament text comes to us from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Please now open up your hearts to hear the Word of God. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. And the second and the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, help us come to see that all things are from you and all things are given by you and that all things, even those things we think might be ugly, are redeemed by you in the beauty of your way. In Christ's name, amen. At first glance, this looks like a typical theological conversation between a group of seminary professors and Jesus trying to catch him in some heresy. They quote scripture, as most religious arguments do, to proof text and make a point. These leaders of the temple called the Sadducees, many of whom did not believe in the resurrection, were trying to figure out what Jesus believed, and also to catch him, as I said, in some blasphemy. Now, as an aside, uh, for our uh, moment of uh, uh, at staff meetings, before we do anything, we read the text for Sunday and we prayerfully talk about it. And as I was reading this, I finished reading it and, and Nat broke in and said, you, you know why they called them Sadducees? And I bit, because I didn't, I mean, I knew the, I knew the Hebrew reason. And he goes, they're, they're called Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. 
that sad you sees are standing up there trying to set Jesus up with a passage from Deuteronomy 25, which says exactly that if, you're, if the husband of a wife dies and they have no children, then the brother of the husband is obligated to marry the wife. And if they don't want to do that, they have to go before a court and, and make reasons. And the reason for that is basically economic and social. The relationship in the first marriage that was formed between the joining of two different families often has land associated with it, and they didn't want the land to be lost if the wife married someone outside of the family. And they wanted the wife to have a child so that they could continue the, preferably a male child, to continue the name of the family. And it's in scripture. And, and the Sadducees are trying to get Jesus to fall for what it said. And, and, and it strikes me that, as I said, this is such a typical religious argument. We pull some text out of scripture and, and, and make a case by it and get caught up in all the little details and ruts and rats and it means exactly this. And it's Jesus stands there. What Jesus calls this kind of argument is straining gnats but swallowing camels. That's, that's, that's majoring in minors. It's typical of us holy roller religious leaders and especially those in Jesus' day to know that gnats cause you to choke, which is exactly why they're using gnats for Jesus, hoping that he would choke, but he didn't. In fact, he didn't even bite. Instead, he goes to the big picture. He points to the universal power of God to raise anyone that God chooses. Saying the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, by the way, I had a really good conversation with a woman who was deeply, happily married for over 60 years, and she said, the thought of me not being married to my husband in heaven is quite disturbing. And I said, I get that, I understand that. Um, and, and all I can say to that as to her was, the relationships that we have will be in heaven will be God-like relationships where we see the fullness of each other not based on a relationship like marriage, but on a relationship like unconditional mutual love and understanding, not just with our spouse, but also with all people. By the way, I also had another woman saying, I can't imagine that I would have to stay married to my late husband <laughs> in heaven. The thought of that just scares me to death. And Jesus says that the proof of this is when Moses stood before the burning bush and he said, you are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of the living, for in you they are still alive. And if they're still alive in God, then they're still alive. They're still alive in God's resurrection. So Jesus, Jesus wins the argument. And they're like, oh, yeah, well said. And they, and they didn't ask him any more questions. But a question still lingers. Jesus said that 
those who God considers worthy will be resurrected. What does that mean? I'm making a jump here. I hope you will make with me. And, and it's because more and more I'm starting to believe that what God sees worthy is not exactly what we see worthy. That God sees worthy as those who, when confronted by the truth and beauty of God's unbelievable grace and creation, we are worthy when we see it, appreciate it, and fall to our knees in gratitude and awe and wonder. If we can experience awe and wonder, that's worthiness. These moments come over us like a flame of love and grace. It just envelops us, this hot fire of incredible presence from time to time. And, and we are engulfed by them. And when we're engulfed by we don't ask the academic questions of the biblical proof text or not, or what does this mean theologically, or I want a rational psychological or physiological explanation. You don't ask that question. You just fall to your knees in gratitude. And you don't ask the question any more than when a fire breaks out in your home threatening to destroy it, that you pause to ask the question of the chemical principle behind combustion or who is to blame. Instead, you act. And when the flames of wonder and awe burst forth in our lives from time to time, our, our sole question is the ultimate question, having been engulfed by this, what am I supposed to do now? It's the only religious question I think we have that matters the most. And it is how we answer that question that makes us worthy. If we are willing to lose our breath in the midst of such moments of divine splendor, I think God sees us as worthy. If we are willing and able to appreciate the beauty of God's creation in all things and all people, that makes us worthy. Someone once said, I think I've said it before, a successful life is not determined by the number of breaths that we take, but by the number of times our breath has been taken away in awe and wonder. The great Jewish rabbi Joshua Heschel wrote that there are two ways of, of living and being in this world, the way of expediency and the way of wonder. In the first way, we work to take care of the world and of others and to get from them what we can. In the second way, the way of wonder, our focus is on how we can serve. When we're driven by expediency, he says, we accumulate information in order to dominate. But when we are driven by awe and wonder, we deepen our appreciation in order to respond. Our life goal is to live in radical amazement, to wake up every morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. 
Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. I love that. In other words, wake up and get out of our little expedient selves and smell the roses. And when it happens, let it take our breath away. I was playing golf uh, Friday afternoon, three weeks ago, the same weekend that the Blue Angels come to Jacksonville with the huge air show. And I know that they practice on Thursdays and Fridays for the show on Saturdays and Sundays. And so it's great to get out there in the afternoon when they're practicing. So I'm on the first tee by myself about to hit. And I heard them out there. I knew they were out there. And all of a sudden, all six of them came zooming. It seemed like tree height. You can't really hear them until they're past, right? Tree height over me with smoke trailing. And there's no way to replicate the power and awesomeness. Truly, in the, in the young person's way, awesomeness of those six incredible aircraft. And I'm just like, and the ground shaking, and it, I just, just completely awestruck by it. And I watched them as I played the holes, doing their circles and the smoke trailing and in and out and their formations and going this. It was, I can't tell you, you've seen it enough to know. The golf course butts up to NAS, a Naval Air Station, and so we're right under it. And finally, by the sixth hole, they'd finished their practice and brought peace and order back to earth. And, um, and I'm sort of grateful for the sight, but also grateful for the, for the quiet. And, and I moved to the seventh hole, and I have a 100-yard shot to the green. And I, as I normally do when hitting a golf ball, I stand behind it and find a spot in front of me, 12 inches or so, that I can line up with with the ball. Jack Nicklaus trip, tip, by the way. And, and I'm sitting there looking for my spot and looking at the green, and all of a sudden, I catch something out of the corner of my eye, and about 100 or 100 and, I don't know, 25 yards away in the top of a live oak tree, I see an, a, a, a huge red-tailed hawk jump off the limb, two flaps of its wings, then collapses its wings like an F-15, only way more aerodynamically, and in a perfect geometric glide path, going probably 60 miles an hour, 20 yards in front of me, from over there, the trajectory perfectly slanted to land another 100 yards to my right in the woods, where as it got into the woods, right behind a tree, it flapped its wings once, it put its talons down and grabbed what looked like a mole from the leaves, and two flaps later, it's up and slowly making its way back to its perch. Now that blew the Blue Angels out of the park. Because <laughs> don't you see, all that we do is simply trying to imitate that which is already done for us in nature. That's what airplanes are about, right? We want to fly like birds. But that hawk was sublime. It took my breath away. How, what do you do to that but just say, thank you? 
If we are dying of thirst in a monsoon of a spiritless world, it is because our modern technological world has taken us away from what matters. We no longer are overcome with awe and wonder, with spirituality, and with an awareness of something so incredibly huge around us that we can only give thanks. So, that being true, why is there so much ugliness in the world? If in fact God's presence and God's beauty of creation is in fact that beautiful, then why is there so much that is ugly? Because God doesn't create ugly, we create ugly. We do ugly. A case can be made that ugly is the opposite of God's beauty. And I'm talking about the way we do ugly, especially more and more these days. And since election is Tuesday, I have to say the ugliness of politics that has only grown more ugly. I'm talking about the lies and deception and negative television, ugly, ugly, negative television ads, 30 seconds of fear. Talking about the misinformation and name calling and the ways that we project our ugliness onto our opponents, like, like that ugly, ugly moment in the Georgia, after the Georgia Florida game, when somebody projected the agreement with the anti Semitic agreement with Kanye West's anti Semitism on TIAA Field from bridges, from buildings, the anti-Semitism that has always been a part of our history is as ugly as it comes and we know the result. It's like letting, it's like letting the demons out. It's like having the, now we have the freedom to let the demons out and the demons are going to go as we project it on to God's chosen people. When we start projecting our ugliness onto others, the dark power of ugly is no longer harnessed. Politics has been hit with a double stick of it. The insurrection on January 6th, in my opinion, was ugly. Most everything, in my opinion, and I know this sounds political, but it's really spiritual. Think about it. It's a spiritual issue. In my opinion, most of everything that comes out of Marjorie Taylor Greene's mouth is ugly. There are plenty of Democrats who do it too. Lauren Boebert asked in a campaign ad in June, the people gathered there, how many AR-15s do you think Jesus would have had? And we're like, I wasn't there, but when I read it, I was like, none. She said, well, he didn't have enough to keep his government from killing him. In my mind, there may be nothing uglier than to use Jesus' name to support gun rights and politics that way. That, to me, is ugly, and we're doing it all over the place. The first commandment says, do not take the Lord's name in vain, and that's exactly what he's saying. Do not use God's name to justify your own self-worthiness or politics. 
I saw a bumper sticker on a car at a condominium I was driving through recently. It was a circle about that big, and in the black background, was in the middle of it was a picture of a skull in white. It got my attention. I stopped and turned to read it. On the top of it, in a half circle, it said, God will judge our enemies. Underneath, in the other half circle going this way, it said, we will arrange the meeting. And there was a bumper sticker on the side of it for a president they hope will be elected. It's ugly. It made my stomach hurt. It's fear-based. And fear-based, you see, gets our attention immediately. It's reactive. Beauty takes time. You can't stand in front of a Monet painting, take a picture of it, and decide that you've got the beauty of it. You have to sit in front of it for hours. I put the picture of the Ghoul's Inlet Sunrise on the bulletin, thinking that it might come out better than it did, but it makes my point. You cannot replicate beauty. It is a reasonable or unreasonable facsimile. It looks gaudy, but not in person. Can't you tone it down, I asked? the best we can do. You cannot replicate God's beauty by painting or by word. You can, you can, you can only come close to it, and in, and in trying to do it, you catch a memory of it, a glimpse of it, which is why I took the picture. We were out there, sunrise, there were probably 20 of us out there, at, right there at the, at the point. Everybody's got their phones up, and I'm like, I know that I should probably just live in the moment, but I need to take a picture of this too. I look down the beach, probably, I don't know, 300 yards to where the lifeguard station is and everybody parks, and there were probably 100 people out doing the sunrise moment. Their phones were out, and there we were, all trying to catch a picture of what? Awe and wonder, when what we should have done is just fallen to our knees in the sand, lifted our arms up, and sang a song of praise and thanksgiving. But I wanted a picture. Beauty takes time. It was Alice Walker who said in that famous quote, nothing makes God matter. That's not how she said it, by the way. Nothing makes God matter than to walk through a field of purple and not take notice. If you want to know what makes us worthy to get into heaven, which is not about just when we die, but the heaven that is with us now, every single day and every single moment, what makes us worthy is, are we willing to open ourselves up to the incredible majesty of God's presence in all things, and it knocks us to our knees in awe and wonder? Or, we can be like those religious zealot judges in Jesus' day who tried to catch him in heresy, giving in to the ugliness of self-righteousness. Without any real evidence, they put him on trial. They spit on him. They whipped him. They beat him. They laughed at him. And they lied about him. Then they handed him over to Pilate to finish him off, which he did when he was crucified. If you're a believer that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that moment was the ugliest moment in the history of the world. 
when Jesus Christ was crucified. But it is just like God's all-filled power to take the ugliest moment in the history of the world and redeem it into something that has now become the most beautiful moment in the history of the world. The redemption of all that is ugly into something that is beautiful should take our breath away. And if it doesn't, I'm not sure we're even breathing. Amen.